podcast. Welcome to Tetra Podcast, episode five. I'm John Conway, and I'm with Darren Nash, who's about to bore us all with ramblings of a sexual nature. Okay, so, um, yeah, let's start, Ben. So, what's up? Hey, um, what's up? Um, well, I've just come out of the, uh, the back of the enormous publicity surrounding the uh, paper published in Historical Biology with Max Blake and Ross Barnett and several colleagues on this links shot in england shot dead in england in a, in or prior to 1903 generated an enormous amount of of interest i don't know if i mentioned it to you before i don't know if i mentioned it on the podcast i don't but, think you um, have and i confess yeah. i saw it on tetsu but i didn't have time to read it so maybe i'll let you off. tell us yeah. about tell us what it's about um so um okay lynxes historically are british they were definitely there are four species of lynxes in the world, and the one that you expect here in Western Europe, the northern or Eurasian lynx, was present in England and elsewhere in the UK until 1,550 years ago, until the 6th or 7th centuries. Um, but there's been suggestions every now and again that maybe lynxes might have survived until more recently. A few years ago, one of my colleagues, Max Blake, currently based at University of Aberystwyth, where he works on beetles, but at the time he was a <clears throat> biology student based at University of Bristol, he discovered a lynx in the collections of Bristol Museum and Art Gallery. And according as a stuffed lynx, mounted, you know, standing up as if it was live, and it also comes with its bones. So we assume that they preserved the bones separately and then they just mounted the skin on some sort of armature, as they often do. There's all kinds of th different things people do, you know, different ways to mount, um, make, make taxidermy mounts of specimens. And, and the thing about this lynx is that all the records said that it was shot in Newton Abbott in Devon in, well, prior, in or prior to 1903. So it was actually given to the museum in 1903. It was, the record said that it, killed, it was shot after killing two dogs, uh, shot by a Mr. Hebb and then donated to the museum by a Mr. Niblet. You know, all this, all the, the documentation is there. And um, Mr. Niblet, I always think of the Niblonians in Futurama. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a great name. Yeah. Off to a good start. Um, and um, yeah, so, so hold on. A lynx shot in England in or prior to 1903. What's the deal here? So we wanted to work out what kind of lynx it was. Uh, and, and, and could you work out from the specimen? Can is a really interesting question. Can you actually work out from bones or skins? Can you work out, you know, something about the life history of an individual? Can you work out how long it had been living in the wild, what it had been eating, what it had been doing? And we use various different methods, including strontium isotope analysis, DNA analysis, morphometrics, uh, basic examination of the quality of its teeth and stuff. We used all these different methods to try and work out something about the life history of the individual. And we got frustratingly... Um, ambiguous results really but um we did try and do everything that you could and um i think well not not you know we all think that the big deal about this specimen is that it potentially shows that non-native because we think it's a canada lynx although uh -huh. there is some 
ongoing controversy there, and we'll come back to that another time. But um, we think it's a Canada lynx, in which case it's clearly not a British native. It's not relevant to the story of lynx survival in the, in the UK. But we think it's part of this story of basically for as long as people have been keeping non-native cats in the UK, these cats have been escaping or the cats have been released. And so there's this been constant trickle of non-native cats into the British countryside. The, the point of this study basically is to say that non-native cats have clearly been present in England long prior to the 1976 Dangerous Wild Animals Act, which is the one thing, the one like piece of legislation, which is often said to be the, 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 like, the main reason for the British big cat, in quote, the British big cats phenomenon. So clearly, like, you know, the point of this research is to say, well, no, they, they're they not just a post-1976 phenomenon. They've, like I said, they've been there for as long as people have been keeping these animals in captivity. So, uh, yeah, a lot of interest in that study. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's another feral, feral cat. Yeah. It's, How yeah, big are lynxes? Is this, is this a British big cat or is this just a British smallish cat? Yeah. We're, well, we're pretty clear on the fact that, that big cat here is used in the sense of when people talk about big cats in the British countryside, they don't mean tigers and lions <laughs> and leopards. Although in cases they do. I mean, I, yeah, I, I do think we've got, we, do have, we do have good reasons for thinking there are leopards abroad in the English countryside, the British countryside at times. But generally when people talk about big cats, they basically mean anything that's like fox size and larger and of the four lynxes the smaller ones the the bobcat some populations of the northern or eurasian lynx some populations of the canada lynx they can be like about fox sized so they are two or three times as big as a large domestic cat but they are not big cats in the true sense of the word you're talking of like you know seven to twelve kilos as opposed to 30 to 70 kilos that well kind of thing. i mean to be fair that is a big cat if your cat yeah. was that big, you'd say, look at my enormous cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we do have some questions rolling in here. Yeah, hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So I'll just That's read this out great. because, yeah, great. Thanks, Mark. This is one from Mark Witten, whoever the hell he is. Love the show. I've never heard of him. I'd like to know what you both look for in a man and what's your idea of a perfect date. So I'll let you take that one, Darren. What I look for in a potential mate, yeah, an enormous great head crest or a huge set of horns. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> a giant hollow resonating device squarely in the middle of the forehead. So speaking of which, what did dinosaurs yeah. look for in a mate? <laughs> so one of the things that we love about dinosaurs and I think pterosaurs as well is the fact that they're extravagant, showy um, crazy looking animals and uh, this bizarre panoply of horns and frills and, and crests and such all over the place. And um, this all fits into like a much bigger picture that isn't just obviously limited to dinosaurs and pterosaurs, but you know, you could, it, it's a phenomenon that's relevant to living things, animals, animals in general. Why do extravagant structures, why are they present in the first place? What are the kind of evolutionary driving forces that cause them to be there and cause them to be maintained and elaborated over time. And um, um, let's try and keep this short rather than just produce an enormous rambling discussion of the whole subject, right? But I think paleontologists... I don't know. I think, that's what, I think that's what this podcast is about, isn't it? Rambling. <laughs> 
What's the I'm point? Assuming, I'm, assu- I'm assuming that our listener count has like gone through the roof since last episode, yeah? It's like giant exponential curve skyward, yeah? Yeah, we're up to six listeners. <laughs> <laughs> More than tripling. Uh, uh, um, yeah. Um, Sorry, I derailed <laughs> you there. The long rambling discussion of sexual selection. Long rambling discussion um sexual sexual selection yeah oh yeah so right so there's these weird extravagant structures myself and colleagues prefer to call them extravagant structures that's kind of like a neutral term for them there are other terms in use but um historically paleontologists have tended to look at these things like crests and frills and sail-like structures and horns and have tended to come up with kind of like mechanical um explanations for them like the horns of triceratops presumably evolved under selection pressure to stab Tyrannosaurus to death or or the giant sail on the head of Nyctosaurus, the giant crest on, I shouldn't say sail, the giant crest on Nyctosaurus um, evolved under selection. Nyctosaurus, we've discussed this before. Yeah. <laughs> Some pterosaurs had head crests that they almost certainly used for aerodynamic reasons or they, they helped to cut through the water quicker or they used them as winds out or something. Like well, if we look at living animals, you know, where, how do we start in studying this phenomenon? If we look at, you know, we should look at living animals and uh, let's face it you know no matter how much you love paleontologists if you compare the number of paleontologists to the number of people who actually study animals in general paleontologists are a tiny minority and most of the data that we have on biology and ecology and behavior obviously comes from uh what what observations we can make about living animals living animals we see things with horns and crests and all, all and sails on their heads all this kind of stuff you know beetles and chameleons and, and so on deer and antelope how do these animals use their extravagant structures? Well, they predominantly, they predominantly use them in socio-sexual display. They mostly use them in intimidating rivals and impressing mates. It's not to say that that's their only function, of course. Like, classic example, deer antlers, elephant tusks, they might have 10 to 15 different, in quotes, functions. They might be used in thermoregulation. They might be using crazy stuff like they might use them in digging, in uh, acoustics and uh, carrying things. Uh, all kinds of functions, but the primary driver seems to be. <laughs> Someone new just followed me on Twitter called "I've Never Killed a Pippet." <laughs> uh, pippets are uh, small passerine birds in the family Motacillidae, closely related to the wagtails. Uh, um, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, so I think that just based on analogy, sociosexual, sociosexual thing is like the seems most likely. And when we look at the other things that we know about the variation and the growth trajectories, um, and the the the, the, um, the general pattern of like who has them and who doesn't have them in fossil animals. Uh, myself and colleagues published a couple of papers on on this subject. The the Rob Nell, the one where Rob Nell was lead author, published in Tree. That's Trends in Ecology and Evolution. That was like our our main review of this subject. We think that all of the evidence that we have basically points to sociosexual um, uh, role. And um, um, there are the, the uh, this is not controversial, really. I mean, I think if you ask most people. Um, who know anything about animals, whether that's dinosaurs or, or living animals, you know, to look at horns of triceratops or the crests on hadrosaurs or whatever, um, ask them why do they think these animals had had such these extravagant structures, exaggerated structures, whatever you want to call them. Um, most people would say, well, it's probably something to do with, yeah, impressing mates and showing off. Does that mean that these proposed mechanical ideas 
are defunct? Well, in many cases, yes, they have been tested and they do turn out to be really crazy um, and not well supported and certainly less well supported than the sociosexual roles. But there's also this major competing hypothesis, which is that the exaggerated structures, extravagant structures, there's the idea that they predominantly function as species recognition aids, that the animals need these horns and crests and frills and so on in order to recognize members of their own species. And I think the reason that we're talking about this at the moment is because Dave Hone and myself have just published this paper in Journal of Zoology where we critique the species recognition hypothesis and basically show that, that it's fundamentally flawed and it is really does not work uh, it certainly isn't as effective an explanation as the as the sexual selection hypothesis um and this is it's the first time you know, the, the species recognition hypothesis gets um mentioned a lot in the dinosaur technical literature and we're basically saying there's some crazy big holes in it some of which are like actually quite amusing i don't think people have really thought about them before it was maybe two podcasts ago i think i mentioned that did, did, did we when did this come up in conversation before why were we talking about it was it the triceratops torosaurus debate did, did yeah. we talk about that i think so. yeah it's that okay so that's like a really important part of this debate it's it's well known and much discussed these days that a number of uh, paleontologists that prim primarily jack horner uh, John Scanella and colleagues, they have argued that the long-frilled horned dinosaur called Taurosaurus is not a distinct taxon, but is the old adult version of Triceratops. So they argue that, they argue that Triceratops goes through like a whole series of morphological transformations during its growth, but then late in adult life, it's morphs into we did do this because i remember doing a transformer sound effect when i spoke about the ontogenetic morphing and i distinctly <laughs> remember that podcast yeah. Yeah. yeah so they argue that triceratops morphs into i do it again morphs into taurosaurus and there's different teams you know backwards and forwards sort of andy farkey had published a paper saying this is he doesn't think this is right because he thinks there are some taurosaurus specimens that are more juvenile than some Triceratops specimens. Um, Nick Longrich and a colleague whose name I've forgotten at the moment, apologies to him, he, they, they published a paper also saying that it doesn't work <clears throat> because Taurosaurus specimens aren't all old adults. What Dave Hone and I have done in our paper is we've brought this within the context of this debate about species recognition. Because, so let's get this right. Jack Horner and colleagues, they say in some of their papers, Jack Horner has published papers with Kevin Padian, um, where they say that exaggerated structures in, in dinosaurs evolved under selection pressure to function as species recognition devices, which means that um, basically their shields, to sh their banners to say, I'm a member of species X, and I only, I'm only interested in other members of species X. I'm not interested in members of species Y. So their argument is that the, the specific details of the structures are specific <coughs> or attacks on, right? Um, 
But the same bunch of people, obviously, we're talking about Jack Horner in this particular case. Jack Horner is also a proponent of the ontogenetic morphing hypothesis, which says that animals, at least in some lineages, change drastically during ontogeny. Now, we know from work that's been done on um, the medullary bone, this is a special tissue that female dinosaurs, including birds, lay down on the inside of their bones when they're preparing to lay eggs. We know from the presence of medullary bone in dinosaurs that dinosaurs of several lineages, and maybe many and maybe all dinosaur lineages, we know that they were able to breed before they'd reached full skeletal maturity. Okay, so we know that. Now let's look at Triceratops again. If Horner and colleagues are right, then this means that a Triceratops that wants to mate with another Triceratops has potentially got an enormous range of different, like, different looking animals that are potential partners because it must have Triceratops type animals that are adolescent Triceratops specimens. They're not even full adults. It's got those going all the way through to old adult ones that look like Taurosaurus. So basically, we're looking at an incredible morphological diversity of animals. Um, which have like a, a, a significantly different array of like facial, horn, and frill characters. These animals all look pretty different. You look at an adolescent, look at the range from an adolescent Triceratops all the way to like an old adult Taurosaurus, if Taurosaurus is you know consists only of old adults, which it probably doesn't. But um, bas basically, it's inconsistent with the species recognition hypothesis. If they want the species recognition hypothesis to work, then they need to expect pretty much all members of a taxon to more or less look similar in terms of like their key exaggerated structures. Uh, and we're saying, hold on, that's not consistent. Uh, and what's kind of amusing is that this ontogenetic morphing hypothesis is, however, more consistent with sociosexual display with the sexual selection hypothesis, because one of the things that can happen in animals that possess extravagant structures used in sexual display is that those structures can you know in some tax in some taxa they do undergo uh, undergo a significant change in form at some point in ontogeny so there's lots more to this argument as with all of these um uh behavioral socio-sexual arguments it's incredibly complicated many different things to think about i try mm. to try to sum it up as best as possible on in the in the tetsu article um I think one thing to mention, though, is that um, a lot of people think that when there's sexual selection going on, it happens in one sex, whereas that's, of course, not the case. You get mutual sexual that, selection. Indeed. And that, of course, is another important part of this, of this debate. And it's kind of, it shouldn't be, but it's kind of at the core of the debate, the presence or absence of sexual selection, because myself and colleagues are arguing with... Kevin Padian and Jack Horner and Padian and Horner keep saying that you can't have but they're saying you can only have sexual selection when you've got sexual dimorphism so they're saying you can only have the evolutionary phenomenon that we call sexual selection which is obviously the evolutionary pressures to do with like you know uh, mating success passing on genes um, they're saying you can only have that in operation when you have sexual dimorphism and it turns out they're saying that because they've got a very peculiar and restrictive definition of sexual selection. They think that sexual selection can only be at play when you've got sexual dimorphism. Um, as I said a moment ago, I think that 
paleontologists are like a small subset of the population of people interested in all this stuff, we need to pay a lot of attention to what biologists who work on living animals say. And they don't apply the term sexual selection in that strangely restrictive way. Um, so sexual selection is clearly at play in animals that don't have sexual dimorphism. There are loads of living animals where the sexes look the same, but there's still sexual selection in operation. There's still obviously animals competing for for mates as males compete with males, but females compete with females as well. Yes, I think Mike Kesey commented somewhere that he wasn't sure of the difference between mutual sexual selection and species recognition. If yeah. you've evolved a structure to attract the opposite sex of your species, what's the difference? And I think I know the answer. Do you want to have a go at it? Well, no. Well, if you think you know the answer, you might be able to explain it better than I can, so go well, for it. Well, I think the answer is that sexually selected structures aren't a threshold. So um, a species recognition structure or device would be just the bare minimum to recognize your species. Whereas sexually yeah. selected structure is going to get runaway evolution of getting bigger and bigger and yes. bigger because you're proving that you can live with this disadvantage. That's um, right. So sexually selected structure, structures will get more and more extravagant, whereas um, species recognition structures or um, I don't know whether structure is the right word, features, will tend to just reach a certain threshold and then stop because once they've done their job, they've done their job. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's that. That is that is pretty much right. I mean, we're looking at the difference between um, intra-specific interaction versus inter-specific interaction, and the differences mm. that the uh, organisms need in order to distinguish one another species from one another actually may not be that great. So, species recognition. The, the the fact that we have loads of populations of uh, groups of species where the animals actually look really similar, but they're able to differentiate one another based on like vocalizations and smell and 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 uh, pigmentation and body shape. Those kind that set of phenomena seem to be rather different from what you get within a species, where individuals are competing within a species, and where yes, you do get crazy runaway um, evolution of of weird structures. So. Um, I don't know. I, it hasn't. It hasn't occurred to me that species recognition is easy to confuse with anything that's sociosexual. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's one of those kind of obvious philosophical points that I'm uh, not thinking well, hard enough. Or... Yeah. I well, I think you could have a structure in both sexes of a species um, that was about species recognition. And the way they sexually select each other is by I literally select some another animal to mate with is by this structure, right? Yeah. But mm. that doesn't mean that they're selecting for that structure to get bigger. It's not like they find that particularly, yeah, attractive. Although, yeah, I, I can see how they might uh, a sexually mutual select sexual selection might start with a. a structure that was originally for um, species recognition. Although it's not clear how many um, structures are species recognition at all, is it? 
Um, well, no, and, and, and like I said, I mean, the fact that we have very similar-looking animals that seem to be able to distinguish one another means that you it's certainly um, species recognition cannot be seen, cannot reasonably be argued to be like an obvious explanation for the, for the evolution of exaggerated structures because yeah. uh, we have... I just said this, we have many, many species that look really similar and are able to tell one another apart. It doesn't mean you don't get hybridization, because obviously you do. Hybridization is rampant. But, um, and, and in dinosaurs, I mean, yes, we have contemporaneous hadrosaurs and horned dinosaurs that have got clearly, obviously different, like, you know, crests and, and frills and whatnot. But what about other sets of species where the you have several contemporaneous animals? Classic example is the the rather boring iguanodontians that you have in like the early Cretaceous of, of uh, Europe and North America and, and elsewhere, and they don't have any exaggerated structures. Uh, we're pretty confident they were able to tell each other apart, and we're able to tell them apart because they're the different heights and their proportions are different and their skulls are different lengths and they're, you know, that, 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 that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. It um, just seems like an un, un, very unlikely driver for very large extravagant structures. Which come at, a, at an evolutionary cost, presumably. Yeah, and it should it should be one of the predictions of species recognition structures is that they should be as close to zero cost as possible. Because if you are looking across a plane and you see, you know, a potential mate, uh, you want to be able to tell straight away that it's you know member of your species or not. The it, the the signals that that animal needs to give off shouldn't be things that it's like invested an enormous amount of. Of, of energy and such into uh, into growing, which of course is relevant to what you just said. It's very different from the kind of runaway peacock's tail type syndrome that's associated with sexual selection. So, and what what do we see in dinosaurs? These these and, and pterosaurs as well. These crests and frills and so on. They are not zero. They're nowhere close to zero cost structures. Many of them are are big. Some of them are like physically quite heavy. Involve substantial growths of of bone and keratin. Um, we mentioned Dave Hone. I mentioned the paper that the plates of Stegosaurus are estimated to have weighed about fifteen percent of the mass of the, the whole animal, which is which is a fair a fair bit, and that does not include the uh, the, the keratin and whatever other yeah. structures on top of it as well. That's just one example. I mean, you, I'm sure you come up with similar figures for horns and frills and, and, and crests and so on. They are not cheap structures to carry around. They do not look similar to the so-called zero-cost or near-zero-cost structures that in the modern world species use to differentiate one another. Well, indeed, because it can be as simple as a stripe of a different colour or a smell yeah. or, or something like yeah, this, right? You may. Yeah, how you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, we've got another question. Oh, have we? Oh, unless you want to talk more about sexual selection, but I think we've, we've covered it I there, haven't we? It's, just, it's, it's, it's long and complicated and probably quite boring, so... Uh... <laughs> well, I don't, I, don't think we were, I don't think that was boring, so good. Oh, good. Okay, well, so this, this question isn't, isn't boring. Um. In the short-lived show Terra Nova, they live 85 million years ago. What modern animal yeah. would be most, most invasive? My vote, a cat. And this is from James Ford, who is at JH underscore Ford on Twitter. So I presume I have never seen Terra Nova. I don't even know what it's about. But I presume it's about what modern animal, if you took it back um, 85 million years ago, would be most invasive. Is that your reading of that question? 
Well, that's what that's what you just said. I don't have is, I don't have my emails open, so I can't look at it. But yeah, that's what that's you just an, said, right? Yeah, that's on the Twitter. Yeah. Is it? It hasn't come through to me. Not yet. Anyway, um, I've I watched part of an episode of Terra Nova and uh, got really bored with it really quickly because it's another one of those things where I'll think of the other. There's another good example which I'll I'll, I'll remember shortly. It looks quite. Oh wow! It's like it's like space dinosaurs. It's like people gone back in time. It's got it's got the guy from uh, what's his name, Colonel from Avatar. It's going to be quite good. And then every single episode is some tedious soap opera about <laughs> the episode, the episode I watched was about it was literally I'm not joking it was about a couple having an affair and I was like I don't want to watch this oh I'm watching it for for Santonian dinosaurs or whatever the I think the idea is that in the future Earth is dead people are in big trouble I know let's salt let's let's be fine by moving back to the Cretaceous when the world was lush and green and everything's rosy. And that's what they do. I think that's what they do. The idea is okay. people have gone from a, a dead, horrible future back into the, a certain period of the Cretaceous. And apparently they chose a part of the Cretaceous that, where not much is known so they could have carte blanche to like make up any old dinosaurs. Carnotaurus is in there for some reason. But, um, right. our invasive, putting an invasive I Forget animal, the show, says, yeah. So forget the show. That that was specifically for you. I said all that for you because obviously you're 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 a Terra Nova virgin, clearly. Yeah. But exactly. um, um, the and my first thought would be like a plant because there's loads of plants where you take them back and that would be big okay. trouble. You know what? But, I'm gonna I'm gonna narrow this down because we don't know anything about insects, not really. So I'm gonna say <laughs> what tetrapod would be most interesting. I was just I was just gonna say nematodes and things as well. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which tetrapod would be most invasive well okay you want something that breeds fast and isn't eaten by by much stuff um and and can make make a living in that kind of world well i don't see why the animals that are the major invasive pests of the, the tetrapods of the of the modern world i don't see why they wouldn't be a big problem in the cretaceous so what about house mice <laughs> or yeah. brown rats Oh, surely, surely, like one mouse, uh, uh, two mice is normally better actually, but a mouse, you know, generational turnover of like two weeks or something crazy like that. It's like 15 days they can be like breeding from birth to breeding or something, something like that. And then uh, it's like one mouse makes like, I don't know, was it 7 million mice in a month or something? It's like, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not being serious, but it's it's crazy numbers like that. So especially if, they're human commensals, so you take them back, and they'd be associated with like human camps and the living quarters of the people, and there be and obviously people are going to have food. So wouldn't they just be like a huge? I was going to say this because I think, but there's there's a problem with this theory in that I think these an, these animals like um, mice and rats they they're essentially human parasites, right? They're commensals. Yeah, so they they thrive in cities and if there are no cities if you're just dumping something back in the cretaceous why would a mouse do any better than a multi-tuberculate i don't think it's clear that it would and i think that same goes for rats well you're right i mean i was thinking there'd be like a big sitting food source because like you think of a you know the australian farms and stuff where they had like mouse plagues billions and billions of it was, mice. it was rabbits, actually. 
No, no, it's mice. You check out mice plagues. They, okay, they there was them. rabbit plagues too then. Oh, yeah, I know. Rabbit-proof fence and all that stuff. But Google mouse plague flamethrower and you'll see <laughs> what I mean. It's terrible, terrible. Um, but, um, okay. Okay, yeah. But yeah. I, think, I think we should ignore that, the human aspect of it. And we're just okay. dumping some animals back in the Cretaceous and then we're taking off in our time machine again. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't rodents be able to make a, a, a living? I mean, there's tropical rodents. Who, who knew? Why are we even talking about the tropics anyway? And I, I'm assuming that from, from the episodes of Terra Nova I've seen, it's like a rainforest world. But, forget um, the show. Forget the, the rainforest. Forget the people. Just dumping some animals back in the Cretaceous. Which, which ones are the best? The best. <laughs> <laughs> which ones are going to win the Cretaceous? Um, well... <laughs> intelligent apes that could take over the world and fashion tools or or maybe yeah. dogs because they could like round up all the dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> you're not taking this question seriously darren what? Well, there's, where, where would you sheep i don't know they're pretty badass <laughs> <laughs> what about i'm wondering about some birds like um gulls or pigeons or some sort of generalist bird or um I don't know. I think theropods are going to make mincemeat of an awful lot of medium-sized mammals. Well, re remember, it's all it's it's the questions like this are basically ask a basically it's a game of of like can you breed fast enough to have like a a birth rate that's way higher than your death rate, which is why I'm still thinking of animals like rodents because even if they are picked off by um, theropods and land crocs and pterosaurs and whatever there's a because because remember mammals generally are disadvantaged compared to dinosaurs because their litters are so small and they and they and they grow comparatively slowly certainly big ones don't they i mean you you've people are now quite familiar with this the idea that a big mammal anything from you know cow sized upwards they produce like a baby a year which is uh is not going to be so good in a world ruled by dinosaurs where, where a cow-sized dinosaur is going to produce, you know, maybe 15, 20, 30 babies a year. So um, maybe maybe there's kind of like a, a cut-off thing, in which case anything smaller than that. So if you're going down to like foxes and cats and things, maybe they do pretty well. Plus also those carnivorans in particular, again, this goes for rodents as well, but those animals are, are quite smart. They're probably... Um, See, initially on the fecundity question, I was thinking frogs and toads, because like modern toads, cane toads, you know, a thousand to one thousand five hundred tadpoles for a single a single breeding event, and they're poisonous. Now, why wouldn't cane toads be like a real problem back then? Uh, yeah, I think that's not a bad answer. Yeah, cane toads is interesting. Actually, the more I think about it, the more I like um, James Ford's answer of cats. I, I do think cats would be um, an interesting thing to introduce. They might put back. The, they might. They might um, put the evolution of mammals back somewhat. Because oh, because they'd eat all the little things, wouldn't they? Yeah. 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 They would be a big problem. They'd wipe out birds and lizards and uh, amphibians and some small dinosaurs. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a good answer. And, and they, but also cane toads. Yeah. No, I was just thinking. Yeah, cats. The fact that cats can live anywhere. They're self-sufficient. They can live 
literally tropics the poles. You know, the domestic cat does do that in the living world. They breed fast and young. Um, yeah, and they can eat anything. It's a good answer, isn't it? It's not a bad one at all. Mm. Yep. Yeah. All right. I was thinking maybe about talking about theropod arms, but we could go for a short one and just skip straight to um, straight to the thing. What do you think? Um, I'm totally easy either way. Okay. So yes, I think we should mostly discuss the first movie and the alien within it. What is it? How would it work? Well, <laughs> having only having watched the 2011 movie most recently and not seen the 1982 one for a long time, <laughs> um, yeah, because I, 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 I've, I've only been thinking about what we see in the 2011 movie. Um, I had had just a, a schnifter too much wine by that stage, and um, I have to confess <laughs> that it's a bit blurry. Yeah. Well, well, in, well, in principle, obviously, it's meant to be the same individual creature even though in the 2011 film they alter the backstory of it and add some more layers of complexity to it and also we're meant to see we're meant to see what ostensibly is its original form which isn't something that we would have predicted from the 1982 film in fact it's inconsistent with what's meant to be in the 1982 film because that's more consistent with what's in the uh, the book the original novel who goes there um, but but the, the principle and the way the way the organism is meant to work is the same, right? Which is basically that um, it's uh, well well actually I'm not sure I, I, I'm not sure the concepts in the different movies are um, consistent because in the 2011 movie it's like a space lobster thing that absorbs other creatures and then creates copies of them, but in the 1982 movie. It's more to do with the concept that it's like an aggregation of independently mobile, potentially independently mobile cells that replicate other cells, make them, and it has, it's got like a chameleonic property. Yeah. It's so a, I don't know. I don't it know. It can communicate among cells if they're connected, right? Yeah. I think that's the idea, isn't it? And that's, that's so much cooler than some sort of space lobster that can morph shapes. I I find that much more interesting. And the original story, I've read the original story of you. No, but I've heard the radio play. Yeah. And which, in which that, I understand is very faithful to the, the, yeah. story, the story. Okay, so yeah, it probably is very similar. But um, it's, it is sort of more akin to a space lobster, um, which I think the, unusually, the first film, I think, vastly improved on the story. I think it was a, more interesting and far creepier animal than uh, creature than um mm. than what was in the story and i think going back to the original story in the second movie which if you if what you say is right and uh i can neither confirm nor deny that it's a bit of a shame which is why i prefer to mm. talk about the first movie because i think it's more interesting and it leaves more questions um open doesn't it yeah, yeah, we shouldn't have had the extended discussion that we did have after watching the 2011 movie because, cause, um, um, you you remember we were talking about the whole fact that that so so there's th there's 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 things that look like people but they're obviously not they are actually things as in alien things that are just rep 
replicants of of copies of of people. So the it, it, the, 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 that conversation we had, we can thrash over some of that now because obviously other people haven't heard what we said. I haven't heard it. Um, Just yeah, pretend we never yeah, had you, it. You, you, you've forgotten it anyway, right? The idea we were saying that um, if if you are one of the things, then and it's like a perfect replica. I think this this is addressed in the 1982 movie. People say, well, ha- would you know that you're one of the things, or is the idea that the thing is you know, it's it's disguised as a person, so it's pretending, it's deliberately pretending to be the person. Because I think that this is this whole issue is raised at the end of the 2011 movie, where the character Sam Carter, he's the Australian helo pilot. The bit when the lady uh, Kate, she's called Kate, asks him about asking the earring question, and he immediately, and and because because the thing can't replicate. Uh, spoiler for the 2011 movie, by the way, we should say never watch it. Do we need? Do we need to do spoilers for? for no, movies? we don't. Not terrible ones. It's not a terrible film. I thought okay, it was quite good. it's not but terrible, but it's, it's not worth watching if you've seen the first one. Don't bother with the second one. Uh, I don't know, but whatever. Um, the so so it's so a we know slight 20... ruin of the first one. Is what it is. Like all prequels. Oh, it's it's not. It's not a patch on the yeah. It's it's not it doesn't can, approach. That. All it can do is detract from the first one. Sure. Okay. Fair enough. But in in the the second one, the the um the main character Kate Lloyd, played by Mary Winstead, she is able to work out who is a thing and who is not because things they can replicate every physical aspect of a person but not metal. So if people have got fillings in their teeth, then obviously the copies don't have fillings. And one of the characters, Sam Carter, one of the last people left alive in the the second movie, he has an earring, but when there's a thing version of him, the thing version doesn't have an earring. And she says, you haven't got your earring in. And thing version of Sam Carter touches the wrong ear. So, which is kind of confusing because does that mean that Thing version of Sam Carter knew that it should have an earring and was, oh, drat, where's my earring? Or is it that Thing version doesn't know that it's got an earring and it's going, what's an earring? Or, um, oh, that, it's very confusing. Um, unfortunately it doesn't make sense does it Um, it it would make sense if he went for the right ear the correct ear sorry yeah yeah, Um, yeah. because that would imply well it doesn't actually answer the question but it could be that he doesn't know and he's and he's going oh where's my earring and then the thing supervenes and says you've been caught out and then does its thing the thing does its thing yeah or yeah. it could mean that the thing is just thinking about it and reaching to its ear and thinking, yeah, I couldn't replicate that. Um, yeah. But reaching to the wrong ear doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> I, think, I think I'm right. I think it reaches the, the wrong ear, and that's how she knows that that's not the real Carter. But, but that, that whole, for, for me, that, that particular scene, I don't know, uh, it, it sort of raises so many questions about, yeah, wh- whether whether that Carter 
thinks he is Carter or whether or whether he knows he's a thing pretending to be Carter. And the thing we were talking about, the, the subject you and I were discussing was whether that point of the movie, that's the bit where she actually had the opportunity. She knows she's dealing with the thing and the thing has just identified itself to her. That's the bit where she had, like, had a reason, had a possible cause to interact with it, which, of course, sat at home sipping wine on your sofa I can, you know, if I'm in the middle of Antarctica with a flamethrower in my hand, maybe I wouldn't be thinking that. I'd just want to burn it. But, um, <laughs> but so that's something I would like. I just wasn't, wasn't sort of, wasn't, wasn't clear. It made it, made it like more, more confusing. I mean, I like the confusion there though. I, yeah, I yeah. love that confusion because I think that the really fascinating thing about the thing is whether you'd actually know yourself. Um, and I suspect you wouldn't, because the most perfect replica you can make of you would include you. It would be all of you plus some, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So your consciousness, your mental activities, the best way to simulate that is just to let them run and interfere with them when you when you need to. Mm. Um, the that best thing is not sense. to not to actually have to have to um, simulate all that and mingle the consciousnesses it'd just be, yeah. be very very um complicated so i yeah i think i think the best explanation is you don't know that you're the thing until it decides it's got to do something it's yeah. got to get out of but there that, that, yeah that that's that's fine that's great and that's that's a brilliant explanation but it's clearly not right and it's not right because in both of the films there are sections where people that are not people that are actually things they specifically target other people because they're going to reveal themselves and and try and kill or take over that other person so in other words they like seek out they like the they make the, there's um i can't remember her name there's like a a female character in the 2011 movie who deliberately uh, takes kate to one side takes her into a room to pretend she's got something important and and private to talk about with her but the, the the reason she does that is because she needs to reveal herself as a thing and try and and try okay. and take over Kate so <clears throat> but prequels so aren't clearly, prequels aren't canon so think of a um think of a an example in the in the first movie it's been a while but yeah, uh, yeah I think I, you're I, probably actually, I think I you're can't. probably right but I'm not sure of it I'm not sure there's any stage where anyone acts as if they're the thing until there's sort of a crucial situation where I think the thing says, right, I've got to intervene here. I've got to do something. Now is my time to reproduce. Well, I, I'm pretty sure this scene, she, this, this female character, she says, you've got to come with me to one side. I need to show you this. And yeah, she does come up with something. Oh, she Darren, shows her. Darren, Darren, it's a prequel. It's not canon. I don't care about that one. It's not canon. <laughs> Not that again. <laughs> is canon. <laughs> Prequels is never count. They're horrible. Uh, yeah. uh, Sam Sam Carter, played by what's his name, Joel Ed Egerton, I think. He he plays he plays the young version of Owen Lars in the Star Wars Attack of the Clunies and uh, Revenge of the Revenge of the whatever it's called, Revenge of the Sith. Uh -huh. Yeah. Is much better in Secret Life of Us. Do you ever watch that? Great. Uh, I would. Episode. I would see that film. Attack of the Clooney, you say? 
Yeah. <laughs> Sounds awesome. I hope it's a Coen Brothers film. Attack of the Attack of the Cloonies. And I haven't come up with a hilarious name for uh, Revenge of the Sith yet. But um <laughs> um Yeah. Yeah, but but no, in terms of the nineteen eighty two, uh, outstanding um yeah, um version of the version of the thing. I can't think of I can't I can't think of instances where people that are not actually people but are actually things where they do do stuff that because the the reveal the the they only thing out <laughs> they only like thingify themselves at, yeah at a, a crucial a crucial moment where they kind of have to and uh, and another another sort of inconsistency between the mo- the two movies is that we know from the 1982 movie is that the the thing is like an unstoppable giant bloodthirsty hor- horrific monster thing evil horrible disgusting thing but yet it also uh, it must be sentient and intelligent and we know that it's technologically capable because uh, toward the end of the film we see that it's constructing something presumably a ship it's constructing its own ship right mm. that is inconsistent with what's in the 2011 version because in the 2011 version their idea there is that the thing is just a creature that's being transported by another alien race and um there's this is another another thing from films where they they cut out a whole section but um yeah you're gonna say ignore that ignore the 2011 version but what's in the 1982 version yeah not only is it like a morphing monster that like absorbs other life forms so it absorbs them creates copies of creates copies of their cells and can create copies of them which is why like a dog comes out of the end is coming out of the end of the um i always thought those dogs were huskies but apparently they're malamutes Right. But it's got a dog coming out the side of it. Um, yeah, um, it can do that. But at the same time, it also is technologically capable and intelligent. And it has to be intelligent that's... in both films because it acts intelligently, doesn't it? It can act like a person um, and can strategize either way. Right. Um, even if mm. it is just a replicating machine. It can still strategize in the second version, and in the first yeah. version, it's um, it's building a spaceship. So yeah. there's there's even taking both films, it's clearly an intelligent alien, um, which uh, as, I, as I think I've said this before, but it's it's actually my one of my the first version, the first version in the first film is one of my favorite favorite aliens because mm. it does just seem to be a super intelligent sort of ooze, which I think is much more interesting than a giant shape-shifting monster, which is sort of mm. the second one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's very, very, very <laughs> alien, which is something you don't see in a yeah. lot of films. Well, no, and I think it raises some some interesting questions about the evolution of of intelligence and morality and all those kinds of things because most people if asked about the evolution of intelligence and society and culture and and, and all and all the things that that involved in that would say that um in order to become sentient and technologically capable and you know all the thing all the things that come with like basically living in a complex society involve um uh empathy and you know not you know we we've obviously gone through a phase you know maybe we're still in it where we cave in other people's heads and eat their brains and like you know chop babies in half and perform horrible acts 
unspeakable acts towards not only other species but to our own species and then the argument is that you know if we're ever going to get towards like a a gene roddenberry style future we've got to like get out of that and you and and a society can only ever become technologically capable and and societally advanced and so on if that happens now but you know i think i think people have that idea a lot that complex societies can only function if there is peace and empathy and 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 love and and respect and killing and bashing in of heads and stuff is kept to a minimum but the th- we, we actually don't know that's we don't know that's true i mean i think there's good reasons for taking it very seriously i think that you know societies only function complex societies well i don't know is this nonsense because because i've just remembered that there are these things called insects well, <laughs> hang on there, uh, there, there is the argument that if we were significantly more aggressive than we are um any technological society would wipe itself out, right? Because we've already got the ability right now to pretty much end life on the planet, or certainly tetrapod life, which is what we care about. Um, I don't think I don't think we have, but I, I take your point. Yeah, yeah. Well, pretty close. I think that. Um, the... I bet we haven't. I bet we haven't. Like seriously, this is a, a debate for another time. But I reckon like the most devastating thermonuclear event you would not kill you wouldn't kill every person and you wouldn't kill every mouse and rat and stuff like that you'd kill you like don't all... have to kill every single one you just have to knock them down below the, where they can recover from right and that's really hard what anyway that's that's, that's another tangent don't worry about that uh, oh, okay yeah i don't know what the radiation um tolerance of lots of animals are to be honest it's quite variable actually isn't it Certainly humans humans would need f- proper fallout shelters and stuff, and they'd need to get in them. Well, exactly, and they would. There's, there's people, there's, uh, at any time, there's people everywhere. It's like, how can you ever kill people? You, li- you well, literally can't. Let's just let's face it, the kinds of people that currently own fallout shelters... They're, yeah, but they're not, not just fallout shelters. There's always people like you know, not, working underground not, all over the not, world. They're not breeders. Thousands of them. <laughs> well. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, but then they'd tangent. have to come to the surface and actually get food and all that. Anyway, um, mm. yeah, it is a tangent because it doesn't even require current technology. But at some point, we're going to have the ability. We're going to have the ability to wipe out everyone on the planet. Okay, yeah. So the the notion is that there's a sort of a limit to ing- aggressiveness in a um in a technological. Ex- technological species because if you're too aggressive you'll just end up all dead yeah however the thing the thing is much more complicated than that because it's not individuals is it it's not uh, from my understanding it can split apart and rejoin and it's an ooze it's not a that's right yeah it's not a single there's not individuals that have to Mm. um make pacts with each other or whatever it doesn't work like that so Mm. Um, the evolution of morality in something like that would be utterly different. It'd be completely, well, alien, wouldn't it? It's true. It's true. It's difficult to know where to start with that. Because um, would you would you develop a uh, well? If something had evolved within that context, would it even be a, be able to develop a sense of like? morality or right or wrong in terms of like it's bad to chop other chop other things in half but why it doesn't matter <laughs> so well, 
but yeah, they're dead. Exactly. Well, that's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, when there's no... Well, then we're helping them. By, but yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. Exactly. It might think that it's doing everyone a favour by um, bringing them into the thing, right? By yes. invading their You'll cells. Assimilated, exactly, <laughs> like the Borg, but actually yeah. a good idea. A proper sci-fi <laughs> idea instead of Star Trek, which, God, we might have to do an episode yeah. on Star Trek, although it's getting quite a way, long way from zoology, isn't it? Well, oh, it's all Star Trek. Xenoborn yeah. zoology, yeah. Okay. I think yeah. We, we, we like you, that. That's a recurring theme, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> have you seen Wayne, uh, the Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, Wayne Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials? I haven't. Oh, it's really good. Um, um, Wayne Barlow, you know, you know, you know Wayne Barlow, the, the I artist. Do know, I do know Wayne Barlow. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he, and oh, I've forgotten the name of the the other person who did the book, but they they selected like fifty or so uh, different aliens from sci-fi, mostly from novels, and um, reconstructed them based on like the descriptions that are given in the books. Really great stuff. And um, and one of them is the thing, and um, it does not look anything like the the space lobster that we see in the 2011 version of the thing. It's uh, it's got like a head like Medusa with sort of like appendages, like snake like appendages around the head. It's got like paired eyes and an open mouth, and um, and towards its lower parts, it's like half dog, and I could never tell from the picture whether it's meant to be absorbing a dog. Or whether it's meant to be—that's the bit of it that's turning into a dog. Um, but, um, it's sort of described vaguely like that in the book. Uh, big head and spindly legs. Um, so perhaps they drew inspiration from that, right? That's what they're doing, isn't it? They must. Well, they did base it. Yeah, they based all the creatures on, on descriptions the in text. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Hmm. I haven't I haven't read it for a long time, so I'm not sh- not sure exactly how it's described. But that does sound familiar. Yeah. Um, uh, how do we wrap it up? Um, you were. Uh, we say we say. Uh, hey, what's coming up? What's happening next? I'm about to leave for the Lyme Regis Fossil Festival, which is going to be really cool, especially because I'm really into ichthyosaurs at the moment. Oh, yeah. The Rio Terras, yeah, Rio Terrasor meeting coming up in a couple of weeks. You're going, so aren't you? Going to Rio. Lucky bastard. Don't ask. Don't ask me how I found the money for that. It's a secret. Um, I got some some super. <laughs> You've been down amazing, the docks again. Yeah, <laughs> some amazing ichthyosaur news coming up real soon. Right. Um, we'll be able to talk, so, talk about that on the next episode of Tetra Podcast. Oh yeah, it's incredible stuff. I, and and I I did want to talk about. Uh, new dinosaury things because I'm I'm in the middle of reading Brian Sweetek's My Beloved Brontosaurus, which is a good read. Um, all yeah. yesterday's news, all yesterday's continues to go from strength to strength. Now has its own page on uh, um, Wikipedia. <laughs> What's it called? Wikipedia. <laughs> no, no, not Wikipedia. Um, TV, TV tropes. tropes. TV tropes. Yes. And did you see the Reddit? discussion of um all yesterday's i don't know should i no you shouldn't it'll, it'll offend you <laughs> basically what happened is somebody somebody now you know obviously 
you, you, you artists, yourself and, and Memo, are both obviously keen to put your stuff out there for free, you know, put stuff on the internet. And um, uh, some, somebody has done a composite image where they've taken the Memo's venomous baboon thing and they've juxtaposed it with like a real baboon and they've said, this is a, this is a baboon, the real baboon. And they said, and this is how the baboon would be reconstructed if we did it in the way that people reconstruct dinosaurs. And the thing that kind of bothers me is they've hashtagged their own name at the bottom of this composite image. And it's like, that's a little bit cheeky because that wasn't your, uh, your picture, but it's no big yeah. deal. You know, well, that's oh. what initiated the discussion on Reddit. And uh, of course, most people, well, I think probably all the people that contributed to the discussion don't know the first thing about all yesterdays, don't get it at all. And they're saying, no, that's, a, such a, that's such a lie. How would, of course, everyone knows mammals have got ears and fur and bellies and stuff. It's like, no, that's not the point. It was, it was, I, I, I tweeted this. So I said they, they missed the point, the fact that it's meant to have been meant to be a baboon as reconstructed by hypothetical non-mammalian, you know, people naive about mammals. That's the whole point about it. But, uh, but nevertheless, interesting to see it covered on Reddit. So... Mm. Um, I try and avoid yeah. conversations where there's not enough context given because, oh, God, the internet, it's full of people that just want to show off, isn't it? They want to show off how much they know about a subject, even if they don't know anything at all about a subject. And if you don't give them enough context to think about it properly, they, yeah. they just go off on stupid rants. It drives me crazy if it's my own stuff, so I just avoid it. But I try and keep that in mind when I'm looking at anything else. I don't have context on this. I should just ignore all internet discussion of it because people are freaking idiots. <laughs> people on Reddit, please buy our book. <laughs> good, uh, yeah, yeah, good recovery there. Yeah, nice save, yeah. nice save. No, but uh, mm. seriously, I, 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 but I do it too. And I just got to be really aware of trying not to do this. When you don't have a lot of context on something, try and mm. get that context before you go on about it. Um, and, and the yeah. best way to get the context is, you know, log on to Amazon there and you, and you buy a Kindle copy of um, All Yesterdays. All Yesterdays is not very expensive, is it? It's no. not like it's hard. No. 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 So, so. There's all yesterday still going extremely strong and people interested in our stuff will probably doubtless also want to buy Tetrapod's Audio Book One, which is available Indeed. from all good digital resellers. And uh, uh, I tweet at, at <laughs> Imperial Walkers on the North Bridge, <laughs> Tezu. <laughs> and there's a blog I run called Tetrapod's Audio, which is hosted by Scientific American. Where, where are you on Tinternet? I'm at johnconway.co. That's where I am. I'm also on the Twitters and, and the Facebooks and the, and, and, the, and the Tumblers. Um, yeah, I'm on Tumblr. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you just got to go to my website to find links for that. Yeah, you're um, tetsu.tumblr.com, aren't you? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, all right. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'll do. That'll do, pig. That'll do. That'll do. That'll do, pig. It's from Babe, a famous uh, film about the sheep pig. Yeah, they well, I haven't seen it since it came out in 1994 or whenever. Oh, I watch it regularly. I love it. Well, you've got kids. <laughs> That's not why I watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's got it's got some deep stuff in it about 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 the whole concept of animals and being killed for food and and singing mice. 